30 years before Jesus of Nazareth's birth, historians tell us that Rome was a republic. The Roman Senate was in control. Everything was relatively stable politically, stable as you could hope for in, in the ancient world. Then Julius Caesar comes to power, and all of that changes. His ambition, his attempt to wrestle control away from the Roman Senate, and then his subsequent assassination leads Rome into a prolonged and bloody civil war. At the end of the war, when the dust has settled, his adopted son, Octavius, is declared the winner. And Octavius, if you know the history, he ends up taking a special title for himself. What's his title? He becomes Augustus. Augustus, the, uh, the, son, the, the high and exalted one, the majestic one. Octavius then declares that his deceased father, Julius, has become a god. He's been divinized, which makes him then Augustus, the son of God. This is the news that's heard around the world when the civil war is ended. Caesar Augustus is the son of God, the world's true and rightful king. What happens next? Tiberius succeeds Augustus, and following the same playbook, he promptly declares that Augustus has now been made a god. If you go online later today and you you look to... uh, you want to buy one of the, the coins from this time period. Uh, I mean, they're like 10 bucks. You can find them very easily. On the front, around Tiberius's portrait, many of the co- coins read as follows. It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That's, on, that's the head's side. <laughs> then the tail's side, it, it portrays Octavius as the chief priest. It's kind of interesting when the Pharisees... Just days later, after Palm Sunday, try to trip Jesus up by asking him the question, hey, should, should we pay taxes to, to Caesar, tribute to Caesar, or not? And Jesus Christ asked for a coin. That, that's the coin that he was handed. The picture of uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Finally, why, why were the Romans even interested in the Middle East, in Palestine? And we look at Palestine today and think... Uh, you know, it's kind of a dingy place, the Middle East. I mean, I wouldn't want to, yeah, it's not the nicest place in the world. Why were they interested, so interested uh, in that location? Well, just like the United States, they needed it, they needed its natural resources. Whereas we need it for its oil, they needed it for its grain. Palestine was a breadbasket of the Mediterranean. And so it was the job of uh, the governor of Judea there in Palestine, somebody by the name of Pontius Pilate. His job was to do three things. Collect the taxes, keep the peace, and, and keep the grain flowing. Collect the cap- taxes, keep the peace. And the way that one keeps the peace is reminding the people that there's only one true king. His name is His name is Tiberius Caesar, and anyone who says otherwise, anyone who says that there's another king, they will pay for it. They will pay dearly, dearly for it. Mark 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We have our Good Friday service coming up at seven o'clock this this Friday, and I, I know that a lot of you appreciate that service. You'll you'll probably come. Some of you won't come, um, but whether you're here or or not. What are your plans for Holy Week? What are your plans for Holy Week? Will you do anything special or different this week? See, on one hand, we have no mandate from Jesus or his apostles that we have to observe these, uh, these special days, mark these days for observance. Um, no, Holy Week is not an obligation, but it is an opportunity. Uh, I do think it's an opportunity. Um, you know, Christmas is hardly an opportunity. If you think about Christmas time, we're just so busy. There's really no real opportunity for spiritual contemplation. But Holy Week's different, isn't it? Um, Let me suggest to you, if you don't have plans already, get online later this afternoon and purchase uh, on Kindle Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor's book, The Final Days, is it, let me get the title right, Final Days of Jesus, The Final Days of Jesus. And what it is, it, it's a, a sequential retelling of Holy Week based upon all four Gospels woven together. It's very well done. The Final Days of Jesus. Now, each day has a pretty lengthy reading, and so you may not have time you say, oh, I can't write, read that much. Well, that's fine. Then um, just take one of the passion narratives and spend some time motiva- uh, meditating on it. And if you don't even have time to do that, well, then just be silent. <laughs> Silence and solitude. Can't think of anything better for Holy Week. Find a comfortable place to sit, block out several minutes each day, and ask God to meet you in the events and the significance of this week. But just don't do any, don't, don't do nothing. Just do something. Um, make this count. I'll talk about some other ways that you can make it count later in the sermon. Back to the story. Okay, there are several peculiar features in this story. We probably don't appreciate them all that much anymore because we've read it so many times. But if you were reading it for the very first time, you would probably pick up on this. Did you find it odd? I find it odd. All of this emphasis on how to get the donkey. <laughs> you, know, you notice that? You, all the things you got to do to get to procure yourself a donkey. I mean, you think Jesus, he could use his divine power, right? He could just go in and snatch the donkey. If anybody objects, he could say, this is not the donkey you are looking for. 
But he doesn't. There's all these instructions on how find this donkey. This donkey's going to be by its mother. It's going to be tied. And oh, by the way, you need to untie it. And did I mention that the donkey is tied? It's a tied donkey. They say five different times in this short passage, the donkey is tied. Why all of this? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament, of course. Every bit of it. If you read in... You go back to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 is the story of Jacob on his deathbed uh, blessing his sons. And the way that they did uh, paternal blessings back in that day, um, at least in the case of Jacob, they, they were prophetic. They weren't merely, son, I bless you and I hope you prosper. But he, he delivers a prophetic word over each of his sons. He comes to his son, Judah. Judah's significant. Judah is the one from whom David and Jesus descend. He says, Judah, here's my blessing prophecy on you. The scepter, the king's scepter will never depart from you and your descendants. And then he goes on to talk very cryptically and strangely about Judah's donkey colt. Go ahead, look it up. Yeah, his donkey colt that's that's tied next to a vine, which is a sign of prosperity. Judah, you will have the scepter and your donkey colt will be tied. That's, that's where it comes from. Another noteworthy feature about this donkey, verse 2, it says that nobody has ever ridden this donkey before in its short life. Nobody has ridden, nobody's ridden the donkey, which eh, it shouldn't come as that much of a surprise because it's a colt. It's a young donkey which means it's a small donkey. Have you ever thought about this? This is not a full-grown donkey. I mean, this is, if you put a, a, a fully grown man on the back of a little pequeño donkey, uh, his legs are going to be nearly touching the ground. You know, this, is a, this is a low rider. <laughs> this is a, uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is a small little donkey, and why does he get a, a tiny donkey? It's because he needed something that had never been ridden before. According to Numbers chapter 19, where we find, and we find this at other places in the Old Testament too, that um, any animal that had never been yoked and never had been ridden, it says in Numbers 19 that that animal is sanctified to the Lord. That animal is holy to the Lord. And so this little tiny, absurd-looking Donkey is, is holy to the Lord. Um, notice, the disciples are never instructed to say anything to the donkey's owner. Did you catch that? You're supposed to say something to the people who, who watch you taking the donkey. They're afraid that maybe you might be stealing the donkey. And so here's what you're supposed to say to them. But there's never any, hey, Mr. Owner and Mrs. Owner, can we take your donkey? Why is that? Because Jesus already, had already made arrangements with the uh, with the owner of this donkey. In other words, all of this is scripted. Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a second, but this is, um, some people have called this a Messiah demonstration. All of it is, is scripted. He is kind of orchestrated for the play to be played out like this. Uh, why a donkey? What's the, that's the million dollar question. Why a donkey? Because um, in the Roman processional, you know how that went. The Roman processional, the Roman general would come to a city. It would always be on the back of a war horse, on this, this great steed. 
And he would come in all of his regalia, followed by his officers, followed by the trains of the spoils of war, leading captives who are being brought on display. Nothing says emperor, king of the world, quite like a war horse, quite like the general, uh, at least according to the Roman mind, that's how a king would enter. But in the Jewish world, nothing says king in the Jewish world like a donkey. This isn't any donkey. This is not any ordinary animal. This is how the kings of Judah rode. Remember, this is Solomon riding into the city of Jerusalem on the back of, uh, you know, on David's mule, on David's donkey. By the way, okay, uh, have you ever read, do this later today, um, G.K. Chesterton's poem, The Donkey? It's so good. Who's read Chesterton's? Nope. It's short. Oh, okay. Everybody here. Good. Kenny, thank you, Kenny. I see that hand. (laughs) Everybody here, find G.K. Chesterton's poem, The Donkey. It's wonderful. It's simple. And really does reflect uh, the, the absurd sense of humor that God has. That he would create a people um, and create a culture where the expectation was when your king came to the city, according to Zechariah chapter 9, which is quoted there in Matthew, the prophet, when the king comes to the city, it's going to be on the back of the most gangly-looking, silly animal with this oversized man on its back. Nothing said king to the Jewish mind quite like that. And here's where I'm going with this. Here's what's significant. When Jesus tells them to go get a colt, these disciples know that something big is about to happen. They know that they are entering a point of no return in Jesus' story. They know what go get a colt means. Go get a colt. I'm about to enter in the city. I'm going as king. They understood that. They didn't have Netflix and Xbox and and all, you know iPhones. And they had the Torah. They memorized the Torah. They knew Zechariah. We, we may have never read Zechariah before in our lives, but they knew Zechariah. They knew what this meant. They mostly knew what this meant. John chapter 12, verse 16 says that they didn't fully understand the events until Jesus was crucified and glorified. But they, I just think it's crazy that God would lay that, those breadcrumbs, right? Those are the breadcrumbs he was laying for hundreds of years. The people do. Let's see the crowd's response. They do get it, sort of. They do three things. They uh, take their cloaks or they take their jackets. They throw their jackets on the ground. And what is that a symbol of? That's a symbol of rolling out the red carpet. They roll out the red carpet of royalty for Jesus. Next, they take their palm branches or whatever branches that they had cut from trees. And they, ever since 141 BC, when Simon Maccabees had uh, come into the city of Jerusalem, having vanquished the Syrian army and purging Jerusalem from all of its pagan influence, all the people went out and they, they hailed him with palm branches. Palm branches were, were a nationalistic, patriotic symbol. It would be kind of like us going out on a parade and waving our little... American flags. That's what they were doing with the palm branches, waving, waving their flags. And then they do the third thing. The third thing is they chant from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes to the name of, blessed is he. So they chant it antiphonally. You can almost see how, uh, 
how they would do it. You know, one group of the people says this part, and then one group of the people says this part. I wish we did that when we read our psalms here in church we, with a little more gusto. It, it, they, they are antiphonal readings. We're supposed to do it a little louder than we typically do. Um, but yeah, they're song, singing Psalm 118, which is is a part of Psalm 113 up to 118 are what are called the Hallel Psalms, which begin, every one of them begin with Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And that's what Jewish pilgrims would oftentimes sing as they were making their way to the feast in the city of Jerusalem. Here's a, a little trick. Those of you who have been in church for years have heard this point made before, and, and, and frankly, I'm guilty of having made this point before, but there's something along the lines of how tragic it is that the people who hailed Jesus with hosannas on Sunday would then turn right around and be the same ones who yell crucify five days later. How many people have heard that before? Right? I've, I've said it. Yeah. It's not true. <laughs> it's a pre- preacher fable. It's, it's not true. They're two different crowds. You say, well, how do I know that? Because if you read in Luke's gospel, it says the people that are there with him, hailing him, they are, they are a group of his disciples. Who, they, are, they are Galilean pilgrims who had traveled down from the north to the city for the feast. They were likely part of the, maybe part of the very same caravan of people who were traveling along with Jesus uh, that's why they're singing the pilgrim psalms, Psalm 118. Uh, another fa- feature is that nowhere in the story do you ever read that it says that the people of Jerusalem came out to him. They, they didn't come out to greet him. How well do you know Palm Sunday? Here's a trivia quiz question. When the people are waving their palm branches and rolling out the red carpet on Palm Sunday... When all of that was going on, and, and you hear the clip-clap of the donkey's you know, hooves, what was Jesus doing then? Anybody know? What was Jesus doing? Everybody's hailing him. It says in the Gospel of Luke, he comes around the corner, around the, the edge of the Mount of Olives. What was Jesus doing then? It says that he was weeping. He was He was crying. He says, oh, Jerusalem, if you had any idea that your king was coming to you, that's another hint that it wasn't the people of Jerusalem. He says, no, you people of Jerusalem, you don't understand who has come to visit you. And he's, he's weeping. Did you realize? I didn't. Jesus is weeping on Palm Sunday, recognizing that because of their hardness of heart and their unbelief, that 40 years later, you know, the Romans are going to come in and destroy the city. Few, few Christians realize that on Palm Sunday, uh, our Savior was weeping on, on a donkey's back. How is that for a picture? Well, there you have it. There's the story. I've spent a long time focusing on the details of the story and giving you a lot of background. Hopefully, some of that background is helpful. But then, what, so what? what? What difference does it make? Usually, the hardest part of a sermon is to write the, the so what points. Uh, and what I have here are three so-so, so-what points <laughs> for Palm Sunday. Number one, I want you to consider first the childishness of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is filled with, with all of these childish details. It's a charade. It's a donkey charade. The charade with the donkey, the Davidic play-acting, 
the palm branches, all the way down, and we sang about it earlier, to the, the, the little children themselves being caught up in on all the action. I mean, the kids are running around chanting. If you remember what the Pharisees do when they see what's going on, they say to Jesus, hey, you better shut these, these kids up. I mean, I can imagine the kids like running and actually participating in the parade. They're having so much fun. You know, they... They run ahead, they run back. It's, it's a free-for-all. And remember what Jesus says is that if, my, if these kids are quiet, you know it'll happen. The stones will cry out in praise. The hills will cry out in praise. I can't, I can't muffle the kids. That's what he says. Uh, Palm Sunday is a fulfillment of Psalm 8, that out of the mouths of young children, God has ordained strength and praise. Um, Palm Sunday is a childish day. I suspect that this is a nearly universal phenomenon as we age. You, you look into the mirror one day and you, you look in the mirror and you say, what in the world has happened to me? <laughs> what in the, how did this happen? Ah, how, where did those lines come from? Where did that discoloration on my nose come, come from? Yeah, you know? It's sort of like how you know people tell you that your kids are going to grow up fast, and you know that your kids are going to grow up fast, and you know cherish every moment because it'll only be here for a second. You know that, but even when it happens, it still feels surprising that your kids grew up fast, doesn't it? And I think aging is that way too. You know you're going to get old, but it's still surprising when you see how old. <laughs> Why don't we grow young? We grow old too quickly. Why don't we grow young quickly? As one writer puts it, to say that Palm Sunday is childish is is not to say that it's fake or false or make-believe. To say that it is childish is to say that it's a moment charged with childlike joy, exuberance, and hope. We remember how Jesus says repeatedly that if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become more childlike. He says to Nicodemus, you want to come into the kingdom of heaven? You've got to be born again like a little baby, spiritually. I asked myself this question when I was writing the sermon, and I ask it to you. When was the last time you asked God to make you more childlike in spirit? When was the last time you prayed that? God, make me grow young. <laughs> make me grow young. And when we were children, we didn't worry about what we would eat. We went to bed every night quite confident our parents would provide for our meals, Uh, We didn't worry what we would wear in the morning. We woke up every morning confident that our parents would provide us our clothes. Now that we are old, we worry about everything, don't we? We're always worrying about everything. We are too serious. We've lost what it's like to frolic in the the 100-acre wood. We are too serious. If we had, truly, if we had a Palm Sunday processional, today, where we started down at the local elementary school, and we made our way up the hill, Palm Sunday processional, guess what? You wouldn't participate, because you're, no, truly, because you're too old. You're too old. You would watch. You'd be a great spectator. you watch the kids, and you might take some pictures and all of that, but isn't that indicative that we're too old? So that's one of the things you can pray for. During Holy Week, God, make me more childlike during this Holy Week. That's number one. Number two, Mick Jagger 
the wise one, uh, tells us, <laughs> Mick Jagger tells us that you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what, sometimes you get what you need. And that's true if, uh, if God is kind, if God has been kind to you, you get not what you want, but what you need. One of the lessons I've learned in ministry is the stark difference between what people want and what they need and how the two are rarely in alignment. I, I see that in my own life. There's such a disparity between want and, and need. What did they want? What were, the, what, were the, what were they wanting on Palm Sunday? Well, I mean, the general consensus was that, was that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem and he'd kick the absolute snot out of the Romans, right? The king rides in on the donkey, which you know, the Romans probably would have snickered at that, but the Jews knew that that meant business. He rides in on the donkey, and the first thing that he will do is you know, announce his revolution, and he's going to come into Jerusalem, and the first thing he's going to attack is what? The Roman garrison. He's going to go right for the Roman garrison, and everybody else is going to join in the revolt. Only, where does he go? <laughs> Verse 11 is so anticlimactic, the way that Mark writes it. You know, Jesus entered Jerusalem, says, then he went into the temple courts, he looked around at everything. Uh, he looked around at everything. What did he see when he looked around at everything? He saw the money changers, didn't he? He saw uh, all of the animals that were never supposed to be in the temple, the, the animals for sacrifice. But in order to make the, the transaction, the sale, go a little quicker, they brought the animals into the court of the Gentiles, and it was just a complete zoo, literally. He sees, he looks around and he sees that. He looks around and he, and he sees, uh, he's plotting, he's plotting his, uh, the bomb that he's going to set off the next morning. It's when Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, comes to Jerusalem. He doesn't deal with a Roman problem, he deals with the church problem. And he sets off a bomb in the temple courts. The next and the reason that was significant is because by turning over the table of the money changers and, and snapping the whip of cords and making the animals, what he effectively did is he shut down the temple for at least one day. For one day, the temple was completely, you know, turned upside down. They weren't able, he attacks the temple. Yeah, I thought you were going to come and conquer them. And then he comes in and he conquers us. You're not supposed to do that. That's not what. That's not what we need. You don't get what you want from God. You get, hopefully, if he's been kind to you, you get what you need. Israel needed to be redeemed much more than she needed to be delivered. One of the things that I plan to do in my Holy Week meditation this week, I plan to focus on how much Brad Cheney needs the cross. And I'm going to get my journal out. I'm going to write down the specific reasons why do I, Brad Cheney, need this thing we call the cross? What are all the different reasons and ways? I encourage you to ask yourself the same question, to go and personally consider, why is the cross so needful for me? We're going to sing about the power of the cross in just a minute here. That's number two. Then number three, finally, I'm going to close with this. Uh, Vanitha Risner is the author of a new book entitled The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Suffering. I haven't read the book yet. I've heard it's quite good. Uh, Risner also writes on the uh, Desiring God website, which is a, a great resource. So I'm assuming that it, it's really good. 
And as you can imagine, the book is about her journey through suffering. Um, I'm so glad that the winter is over. You know, I've told you I, I, I suffer with seasonal depression. Uh, and you, you, you just drive down Harrison Boulevard today, you just see the buds coming up. I mean, it's like, how can anybody de- be depressed now? <laughs> it's so magnificent. Uh, and baseball season is here. <laughs> it's impossible to be depressed when you... Yeah, but, you know, some of us are are actually more depressed today than we were in November. You know, we're just at the, the end of our rope. Um, what do you do when you're in the pit and you can't get out? Writes Risner. I'm going to close with her story. Several years ago, I was sinking into a, a, a dull depression. Life was gray. I cried at the slightest provocation. A lot of times I cried with no provocation at all. I was falling into a black hole and I felt powerless to stop my descent. Have you ever felt that before? So much of my life had disintegrated at that point. My husband had left our family. Our, our children had decided that God wasn't real. They were very, they were angry at faith, angry at the church, disillusioned, and, and taking their frustrations out at home on, on me, the single mom. At this very same time, my health was terrible. I, I was spiraling downward. I was struggling to even care for myself, let alone my two adolescent daughters. I was at one of the lowest points uh, in my life. And it, now I was a person who previously had a deep relationship with God. And, and now I was a person who was struggling to believe that God existed and loved me. My relentless pain had convinced me that and this is what pain does do to us when it's prolonged. Uh, it convinced me that my situation would never change. It's not going to change. It's not going to get better. My friends tried to help as best they could by bringing me food, praying for me, encouraging me to press on. I appreciated their efforts. Uh, nonetheless, I still felt desperate, overwhelmed, and discouraged. And I'm one of those people that I don't like to discuss my problems. Um, so I didn't. I just I, I kind of kept it under wraps. Some of my loved ones, they would come and they would offer advice. But you know how advice feels and works in those situations. Um, so one morning, I finally decided to tell a few friends just how bad I was feeling. I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to talk at all. But I knew that it was probably the right thing for me to do. So, uh, so as soon as I started talking, <laughs> I couldn't talk anymore. I, I just cried. Cried uncontrollably cried. It was kind of awkward sitting there with five other women, and I could not talk. I just cry. And they sat there wordlessly. After a long silence, one friend spoke, and I will never forget her words. She said, Vanitha, when I think of you and pray for you, I keep seeing an image. I don't know, a prophetic image, or I just keep seeing this image. It, It's of the disciples and Jesus' mother, Mary, weeping at the foot of the cross. I keep seeing this picture of Mary and the disciples. They're huddled together, trying to comfort each other, trying to make sense of all that has happened. And it doesn't make any sense to them. It doesn't make sense. Remember what what the, uh, the sky was like when they were huddled at the base of the cross? It's dark. The sky's black. All hope 
literally looks lost. All their dreams have died. It, it seems that nothing good will ever come of this. To them, this day, Good Friday, is the darkest day they've ever known. But Vanitha, the one thing that they do not know, and you do not know, is that Easter is coming. Easter is coming. That's God's word for you, you who know who, who you are. It's black, but Easter is coming. Let's pray. Uh, this prayer that was in the Book of Common Prayer that uh, captures this. Let's bow our heads and pray. Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to p- take upon him our nature and to suffer terrible death upon the cross. Our Father, mercifully grant that when we walk in the way of suffering, grant that we may also share in his resurrection. When we suffer, grant us to share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. God's people said, amen.